Welcome to another edition of the Find Your Calling podcast. I'm Todd Wilson, the host. Each week, we interview a different leader to talk about their journey of discovering their calling and the narrative backstory of how they found their calling. Today, we are blessed to have Damon Horton with us. I spent some time talking with Damon and felt his story, the journey, his faithfulness and transitions in his life could really be a blessing to people who are seeking their own calling. Damon comes to us from Kansas City, Kansas. He was born in the inner city in a tough area, met his childhood sweetheart there, became a Christian, has spent a lot of time in ministry, different positions. He has planted a couple of churches. He's in the process of planting a church at Long Beach, California right now. So, Damon, welcome. Hey, thanks, Todd. It's a joy to be here with you. Well, Damon, I'd like to jump right in, and if you would, just spend a couple of minutes. I gave a little overview of your life, but I'd really like to kind of get the flyover of of your journey and the transition points in your life. Yeah. Well, man, it it honestly predates uh, even my birth. A few years before I was born, my mom attended a Billy Graham crusade in Kansas City, and you know, with us being uh, Hispanic, it's basically you're born Roman Catholic. There is no separation of ethnicity and religion. And so two years prior to my birth, she heard the gospel. She made a profession of faith, and it really uh, shaped the rhythm of life for me uh, and my and my family uh, to the point that by the time I was born, I was baptized in the Catholic Church, but my mother had some grief over that. And then she uh, had us uh, attending a, a Pentecostal church, Assembly of God Church, from uh, the age of five, and that's really where we began to wrestle through spiritual concepts, the scriptures, you know, the reality that God's calling on my life. She would pray specific prayers over me at night, and that just kind of ushered me through the reality of life. You know, by the age of 10, that's when my wife and I met doing ministry in the projects because my mom was doing ministry in the projects uh, in Kansas City, Uh, and then by the age of 15, when the Lord saved me, it was uh, an awakening of, in many ways, uh, one, to surrender my heart gifts, passions to Christ, and allow him to uh, leverage my life for his glory. And that then took us, uh, you know, into my wife and I then getting married uh, while I was serving as a youth pastor. And then uh, doing that for a few years, and I was convicted because I had never been groomed in the scriptures, never been taught how to put together a sermon, or even how to inductively study the Bible. So I felt compelled to go to Bible college, in which my wife joined me. And then, you know, at the age of 27, I received my first called to be the senior pastor of a church that was 97 years old, so there's a 70-year-age 70, 70, uh, difference between me and the congregation uh, in many ways. And then uh, through a series of God's providences that led to a church plant, which then developed into the merging of another congregation with ours, and then the Lord transitioned us away from that uh, just shy of two years uh, after cementing the merge to Atlanta, Georgia, uh, serving in a couple of different capacities. And then God spoke to my heart and my wife's heart about planting a church in South L.A. County. So then we transitioned to North Carolina to uh, be a resident at the church planting residency at Summit Church uh, with uh, the Summit Network and J.D. Greer. And then we were just recently commissioned a couple of months ago, and here we are in L.A. uh, starting to foster community and develop a team. And I'm blessed to serve alongside a couple of leaders who share the same passion for South L.A. County. Well, Damon, there's not like a standard definition of calling that we can go read somewhere. How do you articulate and define calling? Yeah, you know, I I look at the scriptures, and what I I see is God places burdens in the souls of people, and then he couples the burden with uh, just talents and and giftings, and the reality of then open doors 
and closed doors, I think, begins to shape the reality of our inward desire. And so I think it's that inward desire that then we then subject to the Lord. You know, we submit all of our plans, all of our ambitions to Him, and then ask Him to place anything that is not in our heart, that is from Him, into our heart to shape and guide us as He leads us through open and closed doors. And so I would say that calling develops from the burden, the talents that God has given us, and the open doors and the closed doors that He provides us to lead us as we're following the calling that He's given us. And how would you articulate your calling today? Well, I would say chiefly it is uh, to communicate the Bible in ways that people can understand, that they can be challenged by the content of Scripture, that they would see life application, and then be commissioned to engage in the tension of where is my life, where is God commanding me to live, and work through that uh, through the auspice of the local church, shepherding and guiding their hearts. And so that's chiefly what I see God has called me to do, is communicate his scriptures in ways that people can understand, be challenged to grow in Christ. And if they don't know Christ, to come and know Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. If I take that calling that's rooted in communicating the truth of the gospel in ways that people can easily understand, in your journey, you've been a gospel rapper, you've been an itinerant preacher, you've been a youth pastor, you've been in old church, you've been in new churches, uh, you've been the executive director of a nonprofit. How, in the season you're in right now, you can you can do the communication thing and communicating biblical truth in a lot of different contexts you already have, but why in a church plant or a local church right now? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. You know, as I search my heart, traveling on the road, um, the past two years have been very busy for me and my family traveling to a lot of places. In doing that, it's easy to be adrift. It's easy to basically be uh, what my friend Zahadi Lewis calls uh, crowded isolation, where you're amongst people, but you're not rooted and connected with any of them. And so in my heart, in my family life, one thing that I desire is deep, meaningful relationships that root back to a common confession in Christ in the local church. And so as we see the need, the level of lostness here in Long Beach, um, even looking at some of the statistics for the murders that are taking place in our neighborhood and the lack of uh, gospel, you know, um, presence pushing back the lostness. And that's not because of ineffective churches. It's because of the overpopulation of non-believers. And so if I want to see lostness reduced, I know that I myself can't reach an entire city. So it's going to take a community. But at the same time, the community then fosters accountability and availability and living through life together. And so communicating the Word of God in a way that people can understand and the calling that God has put on my life, I see no other choice but to surrender it to the ministry of a local church primarily. Um, I believe that Jesus Christ, his bride is the church, that Jesus is building his church. When you look at the scriptures, it's a covenant book written to a covenant people. And so rather than forcing myself to live in a life of isolation, I am drawn to live a family community life with other saints who are seeking to reach the lost and invite them to become part of the family of God. And so that's why I want to do it under the auspice being rooted in a local body of Christ. Well, a lot of times we can look back at our I remember whens, you know, all the way back into childhood, and we can see the roots, we can see the clues that point to our calling. In your case, this communicating biblical truth in ways that are easy to understand. You even get the benefit of a mother who, before you're born, and then at the earliest age you can probably remember, is sharing with you this great communicator, Billy Graham, and the impact that, that he had. 
But go ahead and share with us, what are your earliest memories that you can, maybe you didn't understand it at the time, but you can look back now and you can see the the underpinnings of this calling to communicate gospel truth in easy ways. Yeah. Oh, man. You know, I remember even in Sunday school class, my teachers uh, asking me questions and the answers that would come forth from my mouth, desiring, you know, to know the Word of God. And I'm talking like as early as six and seven years old. I mean, I memorized the Ten Commandments when I was uh, seven years old. And the irony of it, the irony of it is, is I wasn't even a believer, you know. And so it just shows how my heart was naturally bent towards a performance-based salvation. That I thought God was pleased with me if I memorized the Word. And when teachers would ask questions to Bible trivia, I would know the answer because I thought that brought me closer to God, if you will. So I didn't understand the gospel. I heard it preached a myriad of times before I was even saved. And as I think about that, I think about my mom taking me to prayer meetings with her on Monday nights. And I mean, these women prayed, man. They started at 6, and they would not end till 10 or 11 at night. And I was there every Monday with my mom. Um, I remember the times that she would pray with me. She would pray 45-minute prayers, which to an 8-year-old, that seems like an eternity. And I would just grow irritated with that. And I saw her disciplines displayed before me. And I remember one time we were at um, an all-night prayer service at church. And it was a small group of saints that my mom had uh, connected with. And I remember they were praying, and I remember finding, like, a small pulpit to the side. And I remember acting like I was preaching from that pulpit. And I remember then the ladies coming over with my mom and praying over me to be called to, to the ministry to pray to preach the Word of God unashamedly throughout the world. And, I mean, those things, bro, didn't even connect in my mind until you asked me that question. And I think the most ironic reality was uh, when I was 15 years old. It was a few months before the Lord saved me, and we had to do a demonstration speech, and I went to a public school, man. It was rowdy, you know, your typical inner-city school, and I was about to flunk the class, and my, my, my teacher, she said she would give me grace in the fact that if I did a demonstration speech, she would pass me for the semester, and so... <laughs> I was, she was like, is there anything in your locker? And I said, you know, I have, I, I do have, I have a Bible in my backpack. And the reason I had a Bible in my backpack is because I would always hear, you know, evangelists come and say, if you're ashamed of God, he'll be ashamed of you. So take your Bible to school with you. And so I just had that just in case, as you know, an insurance policy that if someone said, do you carry your Bible in school? Man, I do. But I really never took it out. I didn't read it. And so I remember her giving me a pass to go to my locker, went to the locker, came back. And I literally just opened up the scriptures, and I just regurgitated a lot of the stuff that I had heard our pastor communicate over the years. And when I was done, you know, my teacher was moved to tears. Every single kid in my class was just looking at me like, oh, my gosh, like this dude has gifts. And I remember then, you know, asking my teacher, you know, like at the height of my arrogance, she was like, Damon, that was just beautiful. She's crying. She's like, that's beautiful. One of the best sermons I've ever heard. And I said, so I got an A, right? And that, that's all I cared about was the grade. And in hindsight, looking at that, I'm just like, wow, how God just kind of had those fingerprint moments in my life during those times. So those are some thoughts that come back to my mind. Well, from age eight, roughly 17 or 18 until you were 22 or 23, I believe you were traveling, doing gospel rap and itinerant preaching. So it, yes. it would seem those two things are about as pure a form of creative communication or the ability to communicate truth. So from an early age, you're jumping right into this communication thing. I'd like you to tell us a little bit about that window of those five years and how you got into it. But I also would like you, 
your definition of calling where your burdens meet your passions and talents and gifts and where there's opportunity, sort of share with us, even in that first five years right out of high school, how those things came to bear. Yeah. You know, for the immediate reality, it just kind of struck me when I first, you know, came to know the Lord that nobody ever came to my neighborhood to evangelize us. Like, I realized that I would go to other people's areas. Um, I'd go to other people's cities. Nobody ever came to my neighborhood. And I was just like, how come nobody ever comes here? And then I began to recognize that even our church and the evangelism we would do in the housing project communities and things, that wasn't normal. Other churches weren't doing that. And so I had this assumption that everything we were doing was a universal practice in the body of Christ. Then that gave me a grief, which then mutated into anger. And I was so angry that nobody would come and knock on our door and share the gospel that there was, you know, churches on every street corner, and they were more focused on Sunday morning attendance versus actually engaging in the community. And so I would walk the block, and I would talk to people, and I would share the gospel, which then led to me, you know, doing raps and performing on street corners in my neighborhood and other places in the city just to get, you know, people to hear the Word of God. And then some, some friends of mine in the church, they knew that I rapped before I was saved, and they just challenged me to surrender my talent to the Lord. And so they brought me into their group and then that just really, you know, we did youth camps. We traveled all throughout the United States. We were young, man. We were 16, 17 years old, and, and, and we saw that God was using us. And so as that would continue, I would give the altar calls or the gospel message most times at the end of the concert that we were putting on. And then uh, that led to people inviting me to come and speak at youth revivals and things like that. And throughout all of that, even at the high level of immaturity that I still had in Christ, I began to see that it became um, more of a performance than something that I would lay as a precious gift and privilege before the Lord. And so I began to recognize I was operating in my flesh a lot. Like, I wouldn't pray, I wouldn't prepare, I would just get up there and just start rambling truths that other people would say amen at at other places. And so it became more of a technique than really transmitting from the Scriptures the truth of God and the treasures from the Scripture, and then asking the Holy Spirit to let it land in people's heart. And it wasn't until... You know, I uh, went to, to uh, probably about six months before I went to Bible college that I began to then see that I need to be developed, I need to be shaped, I need to be poured into. And so I literally stopped taking concert engagements. I stopped doing recording. I stopped uh, engaging with uh, pulpit ministry because I didn't feel that I was equipped to rightly divide the Word of God. And I felt that I was operating in my flesh. And it was just a high level of arrogance that God had to break out of my heart because we had seen so much ministry opportunity, you know, from literally nine months after I came to know Christ until I was 23 years old. It was constant, um, you know, um, being invited, going places and things of that nature. And so that fed my ego. And so the Lord took those two years to really break me, allow me to be properly discipled and allow me to, um, you know, surrender uh, the calling and the passion that I had and the opportunities God was given to make sure that he would be glorified and not me, that when I would go to a place, and I'm just being real transparent, that I would go there not trying to impress people to the point that I would get invited to six more places because of that one event. And I had to surrender all those things to God and say, Lord, help me just be faithful in this moment. And Holy Spirit, you do the work that I can't do. And whether I get invited nowhere else, allow my heart to be content that as I walk away from place that I handled the Word of God correctly, and that you were glorified, and people were challenged, and their lives would never be the same. Now, you had about two years of 
of youth pastor at several different churches. Was that part of the season uh, of the itinerant ministry or separate? No, it was part of it. Um, in fact, people would even pursue me more now that they knew that I had the title pastor. Um, in fact, the reason that I took on the youth pastorate at first is because, you know, the pastor, he was planting a church in one of the roughest parts of Kansas City, and he said, man, bro, we need a youth pastor that gets the kids, that speaks their language. You're used to entertaining crowds. You're used to giving altar calls. I've heard you preach. Man, why don't you be a youth pastor? So basically, I was asked to become a youth pastor, not on biblical qualification, but basically, dude, you do this on a consistent basis. We'll pay you for it. Shepherd the hearts of our kids. And I was like, all right, cool. And I accepted that position before even praying or talking to my fiance at the time, who was my wife, Alicia. And I remember when I told her, she was highly upset. She was like, how dare you make a life decision like this without including me? And I was like, well, I thought you'd be happy because this is another stream of income. And she was like, it's not about money. Like, we're com- we're becoming one here within a few months, and you're taking on job opportunities, and you're having conversations, and you're making a life choice without even talking to me about it. She's like, that's wrong. How can you lead us? How can you lead me when you're not including me? And that was the first indicator of some serious problems that my ambition uh, that I had to do great things for the Lord was not curbed and it wasn't matured and, and it wasn't being held accountable by anyone. And so, you know, for the next, you know, almost two years, you know, it was it was very challenging for me to wrestle with the title pastor. I didn't even want to be called pastor because I was like, I don't even know if I need a degree. Nobody's put their hands on me to license me, ordain me. I didn't know any of that stuff. And so I just felt like I was a fraud. And so I just, you know, then I began to pray with my wife and say, I don't feel like I need to do this anymore. And by this time, you know, we were pregnant with our first child, uh, who was our honeymoon souvenir. And so the irony of it is, is I wanted to get out of ministry and this was my source of income, <laughs> you know, and my wife was like, this is not really good timing, bro. Like, you know, we need health insurance. We're about to have a baby. And she was working full time at the time. And, and so, but we prayed and she gave me the grace to step away from the church and pursue a non ministry, you know, um, job. And I had no college education, no degrees, no nothing like that. I mean, I had some college education, but I had no degree. And so I was very limited, you know, in what I could do. And it was very challenging to me as a man, um, to me as, you know, someone who had this great ambition to do great things for God. And it was a, it was a very confusing, but yet purifying time uh, in my life. Now, the outcome of that season of time was Bible college. Yeah, I literally Googled the words Bible college and urban because I wanted to see if there was something in a city, and I was willing to move anywhere. And a school by the name of Calvary Bible College popped up on Google. I contacted them and asked them about their urban ministry degree, and they came and uh, they responded, and they invited me to come down look at the campus. And one thing led to another in a series of God's providences. My wife walked away from her full-time you know, full ride through H&R Block's uh, Block Scholarship Program. She was going to get a uh, full ride through a bachelor's degree in business at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. And she walked away from that to come to Bible College with me because equally she wanted to be trained and equipped. And she was good in basketball, and they had a basketball team, but they didn't offer any scholarships. So she was a walk-on, and uh, she became a starter. And so we were both engaged in Bible College life, taking full-time classes in the evenings, and then she would do the basketball during the season. And so we it was really a good time, those two years, 
and 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 it, we we learned a lot. Like I never forget the time. It was after one of our first few classes, and we just sat in the parking lot. Class was over at ten, and we cried for like two hours after class. It was mixed tears. Part of it was joy because we were learning how to inductively study the Bible. We were learning about the richness of God's words we had never been taught. But then that kind of led to this angst in our soul. Like, why didn't we get taught this stuff at an earlier age? And and I remember, you know, communicating that night to my wife. I said, "Is God is my witness. If it's in my power and His will to do so, I don't ever want any twenty-five. I don't want any 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 dude from the hood to wait till they're twenty-five to hear what we heard tonight. I want to do everything I can to get the Word of God out to young people in a way that they can." learn how to rightly divide the Word of God, know that theology is not a cuss word, that they can dive deeply into the Word of God, and they can be trained how to mine out the jewels of God's Word for themselves. And so that led to the writing of my first two books, was the content from my papers and things like that, to help get that in the hands of young people or older saints that have never been taught how to observe, interpret, and apply the Word of God in their lives. So it was a beautiful time, and it was shaping uh, our hearts together, informing us for where we are today in ministry together. So, David, I want to press into to two different transition points here. You leading into Bible college, you you had this experience where you were wanting to get away from being a pastor. Your wife was giving you permission to do something outside being the pastor but you end up at Bible college. Bridge that gap for us. Yeah, it, it really brought my wife and I together through times of prayer. There was high levels of rejection from our family. There was high levels of rejection from people who knew that I wanted to plant a church, but they knew I wanted to receive a Bible education prior to. And I mean, it was a lot of pressure because we had traveled in a lot of circles and there were very few people um, championing our decision to, to go about a slower pace um, because we, you know, we grew up in an environment that was very anti-intellectual. That any 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 kind of biblical education means you quench the spirit. That you're not going to be led by God. It's the joke about calling seminary cemetery, and that we were going to come out educated beyond our intelligence, and that we would lose the spirit of God, and God God won't be with us, and the mission is now. So we have to start the church now. I mean, I literally had guys tell me, you can use my house. Use my house starting this Sunday. Plant your church in my house. God has called you to do this now. So I had so many conflicting voices, and it forced my wife and I to cling together and to pray together. And it was something that we needed because we were so spiritually immature, especially me, that that tension, that rejection, people questioning us from our own family members to deep friends that we've had since we were kids, a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people turned their back on us during that season of life. And so that opened us to a new community of believers that previously we would have never, you know, sat down and shared a meal with. And so it took us out of our comfort zone. Um, just to be candid, we didn't have a lot of ethnic minority friends with us anymore. And now we were enveloped in this predominantly Anglo community of people that we would have never, you know, dialogued with on a consistent basis before. And so it was this culture war. It was a theological war. It was a war for our family. It was the pains of growing in Christ uh, that we endured during that time. And um, that's when I began to, to learn how to be sensitive uh, to my wife, hear her voice, how to curb my appetite and my ambition a little bit more. And uh, at the same time, all my immaturity, you know, kept 
being put on display before me. The more we would learn, the more we would see how immature we were. So it was a very humbling process. It was the opposite of what everybody said would happen. They said we would get educated and lose compassion. We would lose sensitivity to the spirit. So it was just all that stuff that was hurled on us. And, 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 and I believed it. I thought they were right. And so, but then as I saw God developed me through discipleship, uh, the man who recruited me to Bible college, Pastor Mike Pyburn, he discipled me for two years. We met for breakfast and he loved me. He answered my theological questions. He challenged me uh, the way I was living my life as, uh, as a husband, as a man of God. He would talk to me about busyness in my life and calling things that I was doing a foul. He was like, hey, that's not right. You need to you need to humble yourself in this way. You don't need to say yes to all these opportunities because people were still giving us opportunities. And so, you know, he, he challenged me in that way. So it was very shaping and it was cementing. It was very foundational in our life. You know, God has used that still to this day. Well, you've got the seed planted that you want to plant a church someday when you went off to Bible college. You have you and your wife have this sounds like fairly significant awakening that a conviction that you want to be able to get out. You, you don't want anyone who's 25 years old to not be able to learn and hear what you heard while you were there. So there's this bias to the, the younger crowd. And now you come out of Bible college and you accept the senior pastor role at a nearly 100-year-old church with a handful of people. <laughs> And it's uh, once again, it sounds like a little bit of a disconnect from where God was leading you. So tell us about that transition. It was very challenging. I wanted to be deep into the inner city where my wife was raised. Her neighborhood growing up was like my second neighborhood. And so gang infested, you know, the drug cartels from Mexico have locked down in this neighborhood. And that's where I wanted to be. That's where I wanted to plant our church. I had met with a man who heard one of my my rap CDs, uh, it was Systematic Theology, where I took what I learned in Bible college and I put it in rhyme format, recorded it, and released it as a CD. And he heard it, and he contacted me, and his name is John Mark Clifton, and he said, man, I hear what you want to do. I, I've heard that you want to plant a church, and I'm all for that. I know you just graduated from college, and you're." Uh, and I, by this time I had just accepted a position to work for the college as the director of admissions. And he said, I know you're going to go into seminary, and I know you want to plant a church, but would you consider revitalizing a dying work? And I was like, man, at this point, I'll be willing to do anything. And he told me where it was. And it was about three miles away from where I wanted to be. And I was like, man, that's not really the hard part of the city. I'm like, eh, I'll have to pray about it. And I really did. And I talked to my pastor at the time, the man who was discipling me, like Pyburn, because I was helping him plant a church in a suburb of Kansas City called Blue Springs. And so with that, he gave me his blessing to pursue it. And I literally preached my candidating sermon, and the congregation was 97 years old. Members there were, you know, between the ages of 63 and 96, and it was a purely Anglo congregation. And, and I say that because of what's going to unfold here in a second. You know, they, they voted, and literally on my 27th birthday, on July 29th of 2007, they called me and said they took the vote. It was 12 to 1 in favor, and they offered me the call to be their senior pastor, and I accepted after my wife and I had prayed about it. And, you know, we went in there that first Sunday, and there were there were 13 people there. And uh, this was a Southern Baptist church. I had never been in a Southern Baptist church in my whole life. And so I wanted to be a learner of culture. So my wife and I and our family, we just enveloped ourselves um, with the people. We went to their homes for dinner. We learned their traditions. We sang from the Baptist hymnal. We were still using transparencies. I mean, so everything like that was anti where we were from and what we knew. And I literally... 
was just hungry to preach the Word. So I preached through the book of Titus, verse by verse, and we were working through the book of Romans. And within a year's time, we had uh, seen God multiply our numbers to close to 100. Um, but the distinction is that we were no longer a predominantly Anglo church. Now there were ethnic minorities from various ethnicities, African-American, Native American, uh, various uh, Hispanic cultures, Polynesian, Samoan. Uh, it was amazing to see what God was doing, and then that led to some racial tensions, which then led to me seeking consultation from other men of God about how to go forward. And I confronted the sin of racism and set out a plan and a strategy. And what ended up happening is we ended up transitioning out after uh, my year anniversary. And we could have easily had a hospital takeover, outvoted the individuals that were wrestling with the sin, but I didn't feel that that was the best show for the gospel. So I resigned, and then we planted the church uh, three miles away in the immediate area that we wanted to be in. And, you know, to God's glory, years later, uh, an all-black church merged with that congregation. And so now the predominance of congregants in that church now is African-American. And I just talked to the uh, DOM of that area, which is the director of missions for that area uh, in SBC Life, and he was just saying, hey, keep them in prayer. You know, they're just kind of going through some slight transitions, but God is still doing a great work. So it's encouraging to hear that. And I didn't understand what was going on until years later, because I carried the thought of failure from that experience in my heart for years to come. And I didn't know that God was at work, even in the midst of that. I felt like I failed the people. I failed the church in so many ways. And years later, through some consultation with dear friends of mine, I began to see, wow, God was at work mightily through that. And he just wanted me there for a short term to help set up a gospel transition. And then he moved me on. So that was very tough for me to grapple with for those years. I tucked it deep in my heart. Okay, Damon. So for five years, you're fulfilling kind of this dream of planting a church in the inner city of Kansas City, you and your wife working together. And for five years, roughly, you're doing that and we come to your next transition, you leave that work to move to Atlanta. So walk us through, it seems like you're in this dream position at this point. You're preaching, you're communicating the gospel, you're in a church plant, you're in the area you want to be in. So why the move to Atlanta? Yeah, and that was, that was, a, that was something that was definitely from the Lord, and it took me a while to realize it. I think even in hindsight, that, that year that I had at the first church broadened my scope to see that the gospel was needed not just for ethnic minorities or Anglos, but for everyone, but also all generations. And so God began to do a generational work on my heart to make sure that I understood that people who are in their 80s, who are retired, living on SSI income that's fixed, need the gospel in as much as a drug dealer or a prostitute. And so through that, in a series of God's providences through our church plant that led to a church merge, I began to see that God was putting together a body of Christ that was unique in our ministry, and it had every living generation in America present, and ethnicities from all across the board. And it was a dream position. We had just purchased a home, and we felt that this is where we're going to remain for the rest of our lives. And even the transition and the merge, it took our church out of that community that I was so burdened for, and he put us a few miles south of where we wanted to be. It's 10 minutes. And, um, you know, I wrestled with that. I was like, man, Lord, how come we're not in that same neighborhood? And uh, how come we're not planting and plowing there? And I try to get people to move in that neighborhood with us. And so God was just showing me that, you know, even though I was burdened, just because I'm burdened doesn't mean that that's what he wants for me. 
And so I had to learn the distinction between, God, what are you doing for me in this calling and this burden that I have? And that's where the opening doors uh, and closed doors aspect of my answer comes in, is because he was closing doors in areas that I was so sure he wanted me, but then he was opening them in areas that I didn't want to be in. And so that's how Atlanta came up. I had spoken at an event that Reach Records put on called Man Up in Atlanta. And after that, uh, there was some dialogues about their executive director that was transitioning to go plant a church in the Hampton Roads area. And there was a vacancy in the position. And when they had approached me about it, I was like, well, man, maybe we can bring that ministry here to Kansas City. Let the music of Reach stay in Atlanta, but I'll stay in Kansas City and I'll run the ministry under the auspice of a local church. And the board just didn't see eye to eye with me on that, and that's the board at Reach Life. And so I went through the candidacy process with my pastors aware that it was my dream to bring Reach Life to Kansas City. And I, I was adamantly clear, I don't want to move to Atlanta. I don't feel that God's calling me away from the church because we're doing well. We're just about, we're right on the cusp of taking our burden and our commission to the next phase. And so, you know, by this time we were running healthily over 250 adults, 50, 60 kids, we were at well over 90% capacity of the building that we, we own. And so we were thinking, you know, we want to be a healthy church that plants healthy churches. So we're looking at grooming and sending out people to plant out of our church autonomous works throughout Kansas City. We're thinking about purchasing a new building to give us more space. So, like, we're in that transition point um, to go deeper in Kansas City, not to be uprooted. And, again, through a series of God's providences and conversations, it took Ben Washer and Lecrae, the owners of Preach Records, to fly to Kansas City to talk to the elders of my church in our kitchen. And it was it was very tense for about three hours. By this time, my wife and I had prayed together, and we felt that God was leading us to Atlanta. We didn't understand it. We didn't desire it. I said Atlanta would be the one city I never wanted to move to uh, in my whole life. I said that many times publicly, and I did not understand what was going on. And after three hours of what seemed like an inquisition during that time, Somebody spoke up and said, my wife, Alicia, how do you feel about this? And Alicia just broke down and cried, and she spoke for maybe all of 15 seconds. And she said, man, after serious prayer, uh, I really sincerely believe God is transitioning the Horton family out of Kansas City to Atlanta. And as soon as my wife said that, there was a complete 180 from all the leadership. They were like, okay, this must be God. And then I stepped up, and I'm like, wait a minute. You guys have been putting me through the <laughs> ringer for two weeks. You have been going in on Ben and Lecrae. How is it that, and no disrespect to you, baby, but how is it she speaks for all of 15 seconds and now all of a sudden y'all hear God? I'm like, what's going on? And, and one of our youngest elders spoke up and he said, listen, I'm going to be honest with you. God has gifted you with communication ability. You're very influential. We hear you say something about this is God, that's God. You know what? The hardest person that you have to convince is your wife. The last person you ever talk anybody into doing anything is Alicia. So if Alicia says it's God, bro, we believe it's God because you can't talk her into this. And I was like, man, point taken. And so I was like, that, that makes perfect sense. And so, so that transition period uh, went for about um, five months, and then we transitioned down to Atlanta. And being out of the pastorate afforded me the opportunity to heal from a lot of things that I didn't realize were in my heart, like the, the, the issue with the first church that I pastored, God calling our church out of the neighborhood that I desperately wanted to plant and grow a thriving ministry in the merge and leaving less than two years into that, um, feeling like I abandoned people. And at the same time, I needed to put a safe distance between myself and the congregation because so many people were attached to us because me and my wife just poured our life into the people that I was shepherding. And so um, it was very tough to work through those things and through some great counsel that I had from some friends in Atlanta and some pastors 
that's where my third book came from, Bound to Be Free. It, that's the sole wrestling that was going on in my life, and I captured it in a you know semi-autobiographical way. But I was just wrestling through my desire to perform, to to gain acceptance from God, which led to me you know almost burning my family out during that five-year uh, uh, time in the pastorate of uh, accepting engagements, taking a, a heftier similar seminary load, teaching at the Bible college, um, all while being a dad and a, and, and, a, and a husband and a church planter and then a church pastor and raising up leaders. Like I had put so much on my plate. I was burning the candle from both ends so long that burnout was the rhythm of our life. And I didn't understand it. And I almost see like God intervened in our family's behalf to take me out of the pastorate, which I just could not understand. And I mean, close friends of mine, um, almost began to treat me, and, and a couple of them, when I was traveling on the road, would even come up to me in other cities and just tell me they're disappointed in me. They see me as a discounted saint now because I wasn't a mm. pastor. And I was like, wow, but, I, but then I began to not hold them accountable because I was like, that's some of the language I fostered when I would teach places and put such a glorious, you know, over-glorifying role on the role of a pastor that it's like, man, like, you know, if you ain't a pastor, then you ain't it. So I began to even see the legalism in my heart that would bleed out in my communication. And now I was getting served that very form of legalism from people that loved me and affirmed me two months ago. But now that I'm technically not a pastor of a church, now they don't have words for me. Um, you know, people didn't call to check in on me as much anymore. Uh, or people just assumed, oh, he's with Reek, so he's on tour. He's living the good life now. And that was not the truth. And so it was those kind of things that I began to wrestle with. And there was this loneliness and this isolation that I was just like, wow, Lord, I, people laugh about it. But I said, me and my wife, we felt like empty nesters. Here we are in our early 30s, and we felt like empty nesters because all the people we poured into for those past five years, God transitioned us away from. We felt like we had an empty house. Mm-hmm. Nobody was hitting us up for counsel. Nobody was calling us for, for wisdom, you know, and it was just kind of like hard to walk away from that. And so it was very challenging for those early few years in Atlanta, but then God did great work and he allowed us to get plugged into a healthy church, a dear friend of mine, uh, Dahati Lewis and Blueprint Church, and had great, deep, meaningful relationships with men um, that poured into my heart to shepherd me. And they just used the scriptures to be healing salve on my wounded heart that I just, I was ignoring my woundedness and my brokenness. I was refusing to surrender things to God. Um, and that's when it was that time in Atlanta that God really used to leverage our heart and to prepare us for that next transition to L.A., which totally blindsided us again. So... We're kind of getting used to being blindsided by God, man, if you can't tell. <laughs> tell us about then that f- kind of final transition to where you are now, kind of kicking and screaming, go to Atlanta. You're there for a couple of years, and then there's this call to plant a church in Long Beach, California. Yeah, and that's and that's the irony. Like The irony is that I would always tell people the one city I would never live in is Atlanta, but the one city I always want to land in is L.A., and it just was ironic and the Lord's humor, how he would send me to the place I said I'd never go before allowing me to heal and then calling me now to be released to the place that I've always wanted to land. And once again in life, like the cards were stacked against us. My wife had just got diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. I was now getting comfortable with Atlanta. I began to love it. We had a son in Atlanta. And so Atlanta began to grow on my heart, especially the area of Decatur. And I really, I began to love Atlanta. And I was like, and I had just told my wife, man, I feel like I could stay here for the rest of our lives. And that's when the Lord began to shake things up. And he opened up an opportunity for me to preach at an event uh, with uh, Urban Youth Workers Institute in L.A. And Dr. Larry Acosta 
just kind of spoken to my heart. Um, took me to lunch the next day and said, man, I feel like God is calling you back to the pastorate. And uh, I was like, wow, Larry, you're, you're right. Like, nobody really knows that. I feel attention to go back into the pastorate. And he said, man, I really feel like God wants you here in L.A. And I was like, well, Larry, what you don't know is that me and my wife prayed about this right before I came out here, that God was going to call us to L.A. and even expedite that call beyond our comfort zone. Because we were thinking, we'll move out to the West Coast when we're empty nesters, let the kids be raised here, go to school, go to college. And once the last one graduates and, and gets on their way, then we'll head out to Southern California then. Little did I know that it would be a two-year process, and now we're here. And so... That just began to, to allow our, my wife and I again to seek the Lord in prayer. I talked to uh, the president of the North American Mission Board, Kevin Ezell, who I, who I was working for, and he just shepherded my heart through that. He saw that I was being arrogant once again. He said, you're making demands on God to confirm to you a calling that you know he has put on your heart, and God is now opening doors for you to move to L.A. And he was like, I fully support you to the point that if you don't go, I'm going to be disappointed in you because you're not following God. And, and Kevin rebuked me in a loving way, in a pastoral way. It's something that I needed. And through that process, we began a two-year process of seeking out the Lord's will, a timeline. And I had literally a, a prayer list of 15 hurdles that I felt were keeping us from L.A. And literally within three months' time, God marked off every single one of those hurdles and left me without any excuse that we were going to L.A. And, you know, that's when the tension began with my wife asking me, well, when are we going? And little did I know it would be two years until God would bring us into that full transition to land where we were. And so we arrived here uh, just a couple of months ago. We're in that process of trying to transition now into life back into the pastorate, starting a ministry. Um, we're so glad to have other families serving with us. Uh, two of my dear friends, Steve Ross and John Newton, they're both from L.A., one's from Compton, one's from Linwood. Uh, they're going to serve, you know, uh, I'm going to serve alongside them as pastors. That's how I like to say it. And we're starting to form the community uh, that we want to see God use to reduce lostness and push back darkness here in South L.A. County. Hmm. Well, you, you made a small detour from Atlanta. Actually, you went east instead of west to Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, where you did a one-year intern residency program with J.D. Greer before going to L.A., now, this is on the heels yeah. of having already planted a church. You've been the executive director of places. By all accounts, it would look like you're already qualified to go to L.A. So why the one-year detour to a residency program at a church planting church? Yeah, so number 15 on that list of 15 prayer requests uh, or hurdles that I saw was to have a supporting church. And the reality of a supporting church was not just one that would give financially, but one that would pour into me as a leader. I'm blessed to have a wife who is administratively gifted. I tell people I'm an A to Z person. I'm a visionary. I see the beginning and the end. Nothing in between. My wife sees everything in between. She could care less about the A and Z. She's more concerned about the B to Y. And so as I worked through that, I was like, Alicia, I need some training to help me with my leadership. I need to be a better leader. I don't know how to be a good leader. I don't know how to work in systems and structures. And so I said, you know, and this was all before J.D. asked me to come and preach at Summit, and he didn't know that I was wrestling through having a sending church. And so I preached the Summit um, literally three months to the day that I made that list. And uh, after I preached the first night, he said, man, what can I do to help you plant this church in L.A.? And I was like, really? And he said, yeah, man. He's like, I really want to get behind you. I believe in what God's doing in your life. And I just want to be there to support you, man, and I want to work with you, and I want Summit Church to get behind you. And so, 
that led to conversations about doing the residency, which then, you know, I was like, man, I don't know if we can do this or not. And the thing about it is, as I tell people, that it was a, it was a unique position that we were in because we could have went four different ways last summer. One is I could have stayed in Atlanta still working for the North American Mission Board and I could have just stayed there for another year or two and then moved to LA after that. Um, I had an opportunity to become a um, professor at a university, something which is like a dream job for me. And, uh, and everything was ready to go. And, you know, and they said, Hey, if you want to make a five year commitment here and then go to LA, we're willing to, uh, to, to do this, help you finish your PhD and get you some teaching experience. And then you can land in LA. Um, I could have went directly to LA. I had a job opportunity on the table or there was a summer residency. And to be candid, you know, um, I didn't see how the residency was going to work. Just like you said, why would we go east when God is calling us west? And I didn't want to do it. And especially even just from a logistics standpoint, Raleigh-Durham is not urban. There's some areas that are rough, but it's not Los Angeles. It's not Chicago. It's not Houston. You know, so I'm like, why would I go to a moral, you know, bedroom community type city before engaging in a global world-class city with world-class problems? It just didn't make any sense. I felt that if we would have went directly to L.A., we were on fumes with my wife's health, with uh, just isolation we were living in that we would have landed on fumes and we would have burnt out in two years. And my wife fully agreed. I said, I feel like Summit is an answer to prayer in more ways than one. It's not just about my training, but I feel like we're going to get community. We're going to get loved. I feel like my wife's going to have genuine, great relationships with people physically that live around amongst us. And I said, most importantly, we're going to be commissioned. We're going to be sent out with a church that's going to cover us in prayer and love us. And that's exactly what happens. And so we, we felt led to go to Summit and move up to North Carolina. And I'm telling you, that 10 months at Summit was such a blessing. Um, I recommend the residency to guys all the time. And when, some of the feedback that I just didn't, didn't even think about until I would travel to different conferences and speak, and people were like, man, I think it's so humbling that you've already planted, you've got your degrees, and, you know, you've been a pastor like, and yet you still go to this residency for 10 months to be trained and poured into. Like, man, that spoke to me. And I didn't even think about it that way. I was like, man, if that's what you got from my decision to got me the glory, I'm like, that's encouraging. I'm like, because I wasn't even thinking about that. I was just trying to find a place that I can be trained to be a better leader. And people were just amazed at the fact that I was, I would be so self-aware. But I'm like, but that's what the residency does is it gives you levels of self-awareness to recognize hey, I may be good at two things, but then here's 98 things that I'm bad at, and I need 98 other people around me that excel each in those areas. And so they taught me how to foster team, and they taught me how to foster community, and they taught me how to learn to partner with people and raise up leaders and to assist them in helping advance the gospel to make disciples and produce a, a work that is glorifying to God. And so I praise God for the time that we had in North Carolina and I told JD and I told Mike McDaniel, the leader of the residency, there's only one prayer request that I would have and one begging request I make of the residency that I really want to get out of it. And they were like, what is it? And I said, if we agree to move to Raleigh-Durham, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need you to guarantee that you're going to kick me out of Raleigh-Durham at the end because I just know our family is going to love Summit. I'm, I'm not going to want to leave. <laughs> you know. So I'm like, so, and I know my family's not going to want to leave. So I just need y'all to guarantee that you're going to kick me out. And JD... <laughs> In the fashion only he could say, he's like, oh, don't worry about that. I ain't got no problem kicking you out at the end of the residency. That's not a problem. <laughs> so I was like, well, cool. And they didn't have to kick us out. We went, but we went, you know, crying. We went weeping. Um, 
and you know, Summit is Summit feels like home. And you know, people, I feel JD's my pastor, man. Like I, I love what God is doing through Summit. We're cheering them on. And I told him the only thing I wrestle with in my heart now is envy, envy that I'm not present with them. Um, but at the same time, God, you know, removes my heart from that envy to know that, man, I'm, I'm living out what Summit trained me to do. And I want to create that environment that Summit has done in Raleigh Durham out here in LA. And I want to do the same thing out here for the glory of God. So it's been beautiful. Well, Damon, your story is such an encouragement. And I want to thank you for faithfully, uh, both listening and following God's leading. We're excited for what's going to happen there in Long Beach and, uh, just wish you the best. If people want to connect, you've referred to several of your books. Uh, is there a website or something people can connect with you at? Yeah, so the website for our church, Reach Fellowship, is www.rfla. It's short for reachfellowshiplosangeles.org. You can reach us there, or you can go to my website, dahorton.com. But I always like to refer folks to the, the church website, man, because um, God is going to do some great things, and we're anticipating that. Well, great. That's a great way to stay in contact with us. All right. Well, thanks for taking the time today, Damon. Thank you, Todd. I appreciate you, man. These interviews and the Be Do Go framework that I use are based on my book, More. You can learn more about the book, More, at www.more-book.com.